Today we are in Luke chapter 14 from verse 25 down to verse 35. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. Now great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who, against, who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we do ask that by your spirit you would grant us this morning ears to hear. And that you would cause our eyes to see the gospel of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. For his sake and in his name we pray. Amen. As I read and study through the Gospels, I see more and more just how pastoral Jesus is in every sense. And the members of this church have heard me say repeatedly, actually, why don't we do a pop quiz? The members of NBC, who is the real Senior pastor of this church. The answer is? Thank you. A plus for everybody. F minus if you said Sam Lee. Uh, Jesus is the true senior pastor of this church and of every other church faithful to him. And this isn't just a cute sentimental saying I made up. This is exactly what the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 4, that Jesus is the chief shepherd. Literally, that he is the head pastor. There is no greater shepherd of our souls than Jesus is. There's no one who cares more about our spiritual condition and well-being than Jesus does. And this is why he was never impressed by large crowds of followers. Because his concern was at the individual level. He cared about each individual person, the state of their souls, their spiritual welfare. And so it was always the pastoral burden on his heart. Does this person really belong to me with a true and living faith? Is this man, is this woman really my disciple and will follow me into the gates of eternity to be with me? And so it was here on this day as great crowds were following him 
It says in verse 25 that Jesus turned and addressed them. Now imagine this scene. And Jesus is walking on the roads, journeying from one town to the next. And behind him are thousands of people who enjoy his teaching and believe in some measure that he's the Messiah, he's a savior. And excitement is all in the air and the crowds are eager to know what Jesus is going to do or say next. I mean, they see themselves as his enthusiastic disciples and followers because, well, quite literally, they are following him and seeking out his teaching in earnest. But despite all the excitement and enthusiasm, Jesus is at the front of the whole brigade and he seems silent and very pensive with a heavy heart. And suddenly, as the whole thing is moving, he stops. And the train of people behind him slams the brakes and comes to a halt. Maybe some bumping into each other. Whoa, what just happened? What, why did you stop? Is there a roadkill or something? And they can only see the back of his head, but the people in the front row notice Jesus giving a deep sigh. And then he turns around. And faces the crowd. And looking at them with great love and concern in his eyes, his mouth opens to give this heartfelt plea. If any of you comes to me and you don't hate your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters for my sake, even your own life, I'm sorry you can't be my disciple. I'm sorry to burst the bubble, everybody, but I really want to make sure that you don't have the wrong idea about what it means to put your faith in me and follow me. I'm not just another rabbi or religious leader. I'm not the latest and greatest podcast or TED Talk that's gone viral. I am the Lord. I am your God, your maker. And as your God and maker, I demand your life. You're everything. I am calling you to follow me with all of yourself. Leave everything behind. No exceptions. This is what it means to be my disciple, to be a Christian. Anything else, Jesus was telling the crowds, anything else is but a misconception and and a false illusion of following me. It's a counterfeit faith. Do you understand this? He was asking them. And likewise, he's asking everyone in this room. Do you understand this? Are you willing to lay down everything to follow me wherever I go? Whatever that might cost you. But this is the cost of being Jesus' disciple. The cost is everything. But you see here the grand point that Jesus is making. This is the glory of Christ. That he is worthy of everything. Because he is worth everything. That's why it costs everything to follow him. And to insist on anything less is to diminish his true glory of infinite worth. And so can I ask you all this morning, what is Jesus to you? Who is he? How do you see him? What do you uh, see him as? Is he just an important person in your life, one of many? Is he someone with good advice on how to live a fulfilling life? 
Or is he just a vague symbol of hope when things get rough, a nice imaginary friend whose imaginary shoulders you need to cry on sometimes? Or is he in your eyes, as he truly is, the supreme object of your worship? The only one who is rightfully entitled to your total submission, your obedience, your trust. This is the true Jesus of the Bible. You shall have no other gods before him, for he is the Lord, your God. And you see, this is why Jesus begins with this shocking statement about hating your own family. Now, did Jesus mean that you should literally hate your family members? Of course not. And how do we know that? Well, it's patently obvious when you put the rest of the Bible in context. Whenever you come across a difficult passage, always let the rest of the Bible speak into it. Let the Bible explain and interpret itself. And so Jesus here says you must hate your your father, mother, wife, so on and so forth. But the Bible also says, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ Love the church and gave himself up for her. First Timothy 5.8 If anyone refuses to provide for his family members, he is worse than an unbeliever. And remember in the Gospels, Jesus himself, he rebuked the Pharisees for creating this man-made loophole uh, using the law of Corbin. You can see that in Mark chapter 7. And they, it was a little loophole that they created out of thin air to escape the God-given duty to honor their father and mother and care for them in their old age. And so Jesus excoriates them and says, you loveless hypocrites, you revile your father and mother and so disobey God. So all of scripture calls us to love God, love one another, love your family, love those whom God has placed in your life. And so it's evident here that Jesus was not instructing people to literally exercise hatred toward family members. Well, then what did Jesus mean? Well, simply put, that there is to be no one above him. No greater devotion. No greater allegiance. No greater pursuit. To be a Christian means that Christ is preeminent in your heart, even above family. And the whole shocking thing about this all is that this goes so against natural man's reasoning, doesn't it? Because at the end of the day, family is all you got in this world. No greater bond on earth than family blood, and rightly so. But to elevate Jesus above that bond or commitment, I mean, it is just so contrary to the the natural man's instinct that it's as if... You have no love for your family when compared to the preeminent love and devotion you have for Christ, who is your Lord, whom you seek to honor before you honor your parents, your spouse, whoever, should it come to a crossroads. Jesus says you must hate your family to be my disciple because you must be willing to be accused of hating them. Why? Because you won't always be able to love them the way they demand to be loved and honored, which sometimes, especially when it comes to unbelieving parents, or parents particularly of a very strong Eastern culture, they demand total allegiance, or else they feel dishonored. Because filial piety 
as the governing rule. No, listen, your parents love them, respect them, care for them, but they are not God. You are called to holy piety, only to Him. Honor your parents the best that you can. Go 10,000 miles ahead. They are worthy of it as your parents. Honor them as an act of worship to God. Care for them until the very end. But the Lord is the only one worthy of, hear it now, unquestionable trust. He is the only one who has final authority over your life. The only one whose will you are to obey, even if you don't understand. No matter what the cost. And he may call you to live a certain way or make decisions in life based on biblical convictions that your family members don't share or comprehend. And if you should come to such a fork in the road, you are to follow Jesus wherever he goes, wherever he takes you, even if it means having to turn your back to your loved ones and they think that you're hating them and dishonoring them. You know, how often do we hear stories of believers from Hindu families, Muslim families, or just staunchly atheistic families hostile to the gospel? And when God opened their eyes to the gospel in their youth, these young believers, they had to sneak out of their homes every Sunday morning just to be able to gather with the people of God and to hear the word preached. And eventually... When their parents found out that they had turned from idols to serve Christ, the living and true God, they were disowned by their families. Why? Because these believers had brought irreparable dishonor to the family name by abandoning their religious legacy or lack thereof. You dishonored us. You have committed an act of hatred against us. You are dead to us because apparently we are dead to you and you don't care about us. And so they're forced to choose this day whom they will serve. And with tears of sorrow and pain, they choose to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. No family members present to witness and celebrate their glorious union with Christ. But as the baptismal waters engulf all their tears and wash them away, they just whisper under their breath, Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And that is so precious in the sight of God. This is the cost of following Jesus. It'll cost everything. Everything you once held dear. Are you willing to make that cost? Now, of course, not everyone will be required to be abandoned by their families or to go through such extremities in that measure. Some of us, maybe many of us, have been blessed with families who are either in the faith or if not, they're at least tolerant of you being a Christian. But regardless of the specifics of our circumstance and background, the fundamental question is, are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he takes you? even if it were to mean having to give up your ties with loved ones, your belongings, your comforts, whatever must be sacrificed. It's the heart that God is concerned with. 
It's the heart that God is testing. Is pleasing me more important to you than pleasing family, friends, yourself? Do you love me more than these? Abraham, do you love me more than your beloved, beautiful, only son, Isaac? Or does someone, something, take precedent in your heart above God? Is there something that you're not willing to give up? That, my friends, is called an idol. You see, the real question is, is it that you're following Jesus on his terms? Or are you following him, truth be told, on your terms, with contingencies? If so, you're not really following him. You're actually making him follow you. Which begs the question, Who is the real Lord of your life? It's you, yourself. And that's what Jesus is surgically revealing here. The hidden motives of the heart. Following Jesus means that you're no longer following yourself. But that's really what sin is at the end of the day. That we all fallen in sin. We've determined to be our own Master and Lord, to do what we want to do, to live life according to our will, because we've rejected and rebelled against God's perfect and loving authority. But you see, the call to discipleship is really a call to return to the Lord, that He may be the rightful Lord over your life. Where He directs you to go, you go. How He tells you to think, you think. What He tells you to do, you do. To follow Jesus means that he has the commanding authority over your life, not you. This is what it means when the Bible says that the Christian has died to himself. Kind of a funny lingo. What does that exactly mean? It means that the believer has died to his rule and sense of self-autonomy. And is now under the rule of another. That the chief purpose of his life is no longer to do what's right in his own eyes, but to do what is pleasing in the eyes of God, to seek to obey his good and perfect will. And do you realize how bizarre this whole looks to the world? I mean, how utterly nonsensical and backwards it sounds to a world whose resounding message today is, be true to yourself, love yourself. Whatever you want to do, do. Whatever you want to be, be that. No one has any right to tell you who you are, what you are. It's all about you. But here comes along the Christian who says, but I've died to myself. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Huh? What kind of self-destructive, self-hating message is that? Which is why Jesus says, unless you are willing to hate your own life, you can't be my disciple. Because that's what it sounds like to the world. What? Well, why don't you just do whatever makes yourself happy? Just gratify your fleshly instinct. 
What's up with all of these biblical convictions that keep governing your every move and thought? How oppressive. Why don't you just go along with the current? Why can't you just do what you will? Because I have found the master. Or better yet, he has found me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He is worthy of my complete faith, my trust. He is worthy to be followed, even unto death. As Jesus says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, I think we've really cheapened the weight of these words by construing them and applying them as just a very loose metaphor when things don't go our way. You know, people say things like, oh, that annoying neighbor I have to live next to, that is my cross to bear. Oh, I can't believe that the 49ers lost three quarterbacks this past season to injuries. This is my cross to bear as a Niners fan. Now, do you realize what the crowds heard and understood Jesus to be saying? They all lived under the regime of the Roman government. They knew exactly what the Roman cross was and what, what, what it meant. And it wasn't just a metaphor for disappointment. But they heard Jesus to be saying, you want to follow me? All right. Guess where I'm headed? I'm on my way to be executed. So if you want to follow me, you're going to have to be willing to be executed with me. So if you still want to, pick up your cross. Let's be crucified together. Let's suffer and die together. That's what it's going to take. Are you willing? The early church was willing. Under the threat of the hostile Roman government, countless Christians were killed because they swore allegiance to a king other than Caesar, because they proclaimed Jesus as Lord and their lives showed it. I'm sorry, but there was no possibility of being just a casual Sunday Christian. Either Christ was your Lord or Caesar was your Lord. And the difference between the two was, I mean, it was life or death. It was everything. And this is what the early Christians knew as the cost of following Jesus. And many brothers and sisters in Christ today in hostile countries, they know this too. China, North Korea, India, parts of the Middle East. And our country is heading that direction. It may not be too far away. You know, perhaps some of us need to sober up to this reality. Look, is the church in America today being persecuted right now under the threat of active persecution of Christians? The answer is no. Not outright. Yet. But the question I want to ask you is, do you really think that, especially in the context of a free country like this one, do you think that Christian persecution will arise and commence with a sudden big flashy announcement? All of a sudden, a parade of tanks and fighter jets and all these flags that say, die, Christians, die. You think that's going to happen just one day at the flip of a switch? Absolutely not. 
But instead, it's going to be like killing a frog in boiling water. You know what they say? You don't, kill, you don't throw the frog in already boiling water, lest it notice right away and jump out. But if you put it in a pot of room temperature water, put the frog in, oh, hey, it's kind of nice, and you gradually turn up the heat. The environment slowly changes such that the frog can't notice, maybe actually enjoys some of these changes. Oh, believes it to be for his well-being. Oh, it's a nice jacuzzi in here. Until it reaches boiling point, and by then it's too late. In the same way, there may be some things that seem small and innocuous right now, but they serve as stepping stones of turning up the heat of eventually reaching the point of no return. And history proves this pattern. You don't have to look very far. 20th century has plenty of data. Russia, China, others. The point is this. That day of needing to truly bear the cross of persecution or death may be coming sooner than we think. Are you ready? Have you considered that cost? Are you willing to follow Jesus there too? If not, Jesus is saying, just stop now. What's the point? Just turn back. Notice how he says emphatically three times, verse 26, 27, and 33, you cannot be my disciple. Maybe a casual interest is enough to be a disciple of I don't know, Buddha, or a student of yoga, Pilates. But Jesus demands your whole heart and life and person, and anything less is but a caricature of Jesus that you're following, not the real Jesus. And to do so is to ridicule him. Notice how he gives these two illustrations about failing to count the cost and the shamefulness of it all. Verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost whether you're able to complete it? Otherwise, when you lay down the foundation and you're not able to finish, everyone is going to mock you saying, Haha, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What a big joke. I mean, who does that? Who builds a house and embarks on a massive remodeling project without considering the scale of what it's going to take. That is called arrogance and recklessness. You, you'd be making light of such an enormous task and commitments. And again, likewise, verse 31, or what king going out to battle another king in war won't first sit down and consider whether he has enough with 10,000 people to go up against an army of 20,000. And if he realizes that he doesn't have enough, well then maybe he'll pivot. And while the other is a great way off, he asks for peace. What kind of king or commander-in-chief just waltzes into war without proper assessment, without considering the full weight of the matter? To do so would almost be disrespectful to the opposing army, if you will. It would be an insult to their caliber and military worth. Who does that? What king does that? No one. But you see the point Jesus is making. You don't do this with things in life. For, for earthly endeavors, you would never treat them with such contempt and mockery. And why do you do it with me? 
Why do you treat following Christ like that? Why do you think that being his disciple is something that you could just waltz into whenever you please? It's a revolving door, come and go. Is he of so little worth to you? Is he worth only your half-hearted Sunday attendance? Do you think him to be such a pitiful fool that he's pleased with the scraps you toss him as a mere token of appreciation for the promise of heaven? In so doing, you diminish Jesus' glory. You belittle his true worth. Your life makes him out to be so ordinary, so commonplace. You know, that's what profanity is. Profanity isn't just curse words. Profanity means treating what is holy, what is revered, what is sacred, set apart, treating the holy as common. That is what it means to profane something. To claim to be a Christian and yet follow him in such nonchalance is to say to the world that Christ is ordinary, that he is dull, and that he is tasteless. And so Jesus says in verse 34, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear let him hear. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, it's pretty simple. Salt, without saltiness, is no salt at all. It's a worthless oxymoron. Likewise, a Christian life, without living under the Lordship of Christ, is no Christian life at all. It's so worthless that it's not even good for the manure. Because people can't get a taste of his true glory in your life. Do you know what's the greatest dishonor being done to Christ in this world? I'll give you a hint. It is not from the lives of unbelievers, the lawless and the wicked, as offensive as they are to God in their sin. But it is those who bear his name in vain. Christians in name only. Christless Christians. Because they are still the master of their own lives. Those who want to follow Jesus but don't want to give up the seat of authority. They call him Lord, Lord, but they don't do what he, he tells them to do. Those who accept the Bible on their terms, so long as they can pick and choose what parts they like and they choose to listen to. They want all the benefits of salvation. I mean, who doesn't? They want all the benefits of salvation, but they don't want the Savior himself. And they don't want to be saved from what he's come to save sinners from, which is their sinful self and their rebellion against God and the delusion of autonomy. They are like the lukewarm Laodiceans of whom Jesus said, because you are neither hot nor cold. You're neither passionate for me nor do you hate me. You're just kind of in the middle. You got one foot in, one foot out. That disgusts me. I will spit you out of my mouth. Why? Because their life 
As they bear the name of Christ, it makes a mockery out of Christ. As though he were just another ordinary religious figure. Like if there's anyone here who fits this description, you need to hear it loud and clear. That if you do not renounce all, if you do not embrace all of Christ, you cannot be His disciple. You need to stop deceiving yourself. But if this is you, I want you to also understand something very important. Jesus is saying these things not because He doesn't want you to follow Him. It's quite the opposite. He calls upon everyone, come to me, follow me, die to yourself that you might live in me. But the reason why he speaks so strongly and so harshly, it's to jolt you awake, to make you see his true majesty, which you haven't been seeing. You know, this passage is so near and dear to my heart. As I think of my own conversion, I grew up in the church, as some of you know. I bore the name of Christ, but entirely in vain. And my heart was still spiritually dead, my eyes spiritually blind. And I can't pinpoint an exact date, time, and place of when the Lord saved me. But I remember very vividly, actually it kind of came back to my memory as I was studying this passage for this week. I remember that this was one of the portions of Scripture that just blasted my eyelids open. Because you see, through all that time growing up in the church, I attended the Sunday services every Sunday. What a good boy I was. I did all the youth group stuff. I went through all the motions. But that was it. I mean, it was just a Sunday routine. And all the while, Monday through Saturday, in fact, actually including Sunday, while I was going through the motions, my heart was dead cold. I had no love for Christ. I sang all these songs. Oh, I love you, Jesus. But I I didn't know how to mean that. Because truth be told, this whole thing was kind of silly. It was just a Sunday ritual. I mean, honestly, what is so amazing about Jesus that all these songs are written in the superlative? Oh, you are the greatest. Oh, you are the most high. Oh, all glory to you. I mean, really? It sounds like an exaggeration to me. Because if all Jesus wants... It's for me to show my face once a week and just clap and sing along some catchy tunes and put a dollar or two in the offering bucket. If that's what he's pleased with, he's kind of boring, to be honest with you. I mean, look, I was just a high school kid at the time, and even I could tell something was not adding up. This Jesus is utterly mundane and dull. I cannot see What is so glorious about him? There was no glory to behold. And so I remained dead in unbelief. Until one day, by the grace of God, when I was brought to this passage, and I was confronted with these words as they were, as they plainly were, something clicked in me. This is what the Bible actually says. 
Jesus actually said this? What an offensive demand. Who could dare to demand everything? Not just a religious appearance, not just some church affiliation, but to demand my family, my possessions, my life, my health, my plans, my whole existence. Who is worthy of all of me? It must be only someone who is infinitely glorious, the perfection of beauty, in whom is a satisfaction never to be exhausted. If this is what Jesus said, then this must be who Jesus truly is. If he is calling me to give all of myself, he must then be someone who is so utterly worthy of my supreme worship. And if so, then I must follow him. I must know who he is. I must know the real Jesus and what he is like. I must see him. I must spend the rest of my life pursuing him if this is who he is. You see, Jesus costs everything because he is worth everything. Low cost reflects low value, which means then that the highest cost Supreme cost must reflect the highest and supreme value, the greatest treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man finds it, then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Why? Because the man saw the treasure for what it was, that it was more valuable than all that he had. And so he happily gave up everything for it. And he bought that field to have that treasure for himself. And when he did, it didn't even feel like sacrifice. It was pure gain because he saw the treasure for what it was. This, my friends, this is the glory of Jesus Christ, the treasure of the universe. He is the eternal holy God of infinite glory. And the thought that this infinite God took on human flesh and went to the cross for me, And that it was my sin that put him there. But he bore my sins on that cross in love and mercy for a wretch like me. He is worthy of my worship. My whole life, myself, even unto death. You know, some people are maybe nervous about preaching this passage. Oh, it's too somber. It's too heavy. Maybe it'll scare people away. Got to find ways to cushion the blow. No, this is the sweetest and loveliest passage to me. Because it was here that I first beheld the beauty of Christ. I I won't cushion the blow because the full force of these words is what broke down the walls of unbelief. And melted my heart of stone. It was here that I found the resting place for all of my worship, my ambitions, my existence. In Christ alone, I found that which was worth living for and worth dying for. And what a peace there is in that. Friend, 
if you have been blind to the glory of Jesus Christ, I share all this with the prayerful hope that perhaps this might do the trick for you in awakening your soul as God graciously did for me. Come and follow Jesus truly. Leave everything behind and follow him with all of yourself. He is worthy of it and he is worth it. Let me end by speaking to the believers, all you disciples of your dear Lord Jesus. I know you have ears to hear because though you do not see him now, you love him and you have tasted and seen his true majesty. And as you hear all these words of the cost of discipleship, your, your, your heart says, amen. And your, your soul instinctively cries out, yes, he is worthy no matter what the cost. And of course, we all know that it's much easier said than done. But if I can encourage you, You know, some of you, ever since you dropped your fishing nets, as it were, and began following him, the Lord has brought great suffering and costly pain into your life. Whether it's pertaining to family, whether it's your own health, physical suffering. And if he hasn't yet for you, he will bring all kinds of trials and suffering. But I want you to know that in your sorrow and grief, even in the experience of calamities that just don't make any sense, when you, through all the tears of anguish you cling to Christ and you say even through the tears still I will worship you still I will follow you you are still worthy of my trust that makes Jesus look glorious In those moments, God uses your little life on earth to show forth to the world the heavenly majesty of Christ. Beloved, I want to exhort you, press on. Keep following Him. Keep trusting Him. It won't be in vain. He is worth it. And remember His words that everyone who has left houses or brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, lands, whatever, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold in the inheritance of eternal life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son who came to save us by calling us to come and die, that we might live in him. O Lord, we confess the weakness of our faith. But Lord, for all who are in Christ, we we testify and our spirit yearns 
that that is our desire, that we would live in Christ and that our lives would be worth its salt. Oh Lord, help us strengthen our faith. And Lord, it's with this in mind that we, with thanksgiving, prepare to receive this precious sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which you have given to us by the bread and the cup, to strengthen us, to confirm the gospel promise to us, to seal this into our hearts, that in it we are reminded of the assurance of your abiding presence. May you use this as we receive it by faith to whet our spiritual appetite, to know more deeply our suffering Savior, to share in his sufferings, and to live out our union with him. We ask this in his name. Amen.